if you would, if we're going to go back to Psalm 63. I believe the Lord's giving me a message in Psalm 63 for today. And the title is uh, God's Presence, Water for a Thirsty Soul. We'll read Psalm 63 beginning in verse 1. Read the heading. It's a Psalm of David when he was hiding in the wilderness of Judea. And he writes in verse 1, O God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsts for Thee, and my flesh longs for Thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. To see Thy power and Thy glory, so as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary, because Thy loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise Thee. And thus will I bless Thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in Thy name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice, and my soul followeth hard after thee. Thy right hand upholds me, but those that seek my soul to destroy it shall go into the lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion for foxes, but the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone that swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of them that speak lies shall be stopped. He says, let me ask you, have you ever been in a situation where you're really thirsty? Thirst in America, there is just so much water and drinks available almost everywhere to where I don't know how much we really know what it is to be really thirsty. The thirst is described here. About the thirstiest I think I've ever been in my life is back when I was about 20. My uncle lived right on the edge of the mountains in Colorado, and, and I went hiking by myself, and there was like nobody up there, nobody around. I had a canteen. It was 95 degrees. I was really skinny back then, and I'm hiking, and there's no humidity. There was no humidity. I wasn't showing any signs of sweat, but it wasn't long until I drained that canteen. I knew there was some natural springs up there to get water at, and I started getting really thirsty, and I couldn't find the springs. To the point of, I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to die. I'm sure I wasn't that close, I don't know, but I was uncomfortably thirsty. And once I finally did find those springs, I mean, I was hours away from getting back to any kind of civilization and water. But I just remember, I just, that thirst, that just, oh, you just couldn't get enough water once I finally got to those springs. That's the way it was. But here, David's not talking, though, is he, about physical thirst. He's talking about spiritual thirst. And what he's doing is he's comparing his spiritual thirst for God. He's making a comparison to a weary traveler who's in a land where no water could be found. And over there in the Middle East, water is at a premium. They're always fighting over water. That's the way it was all through the Bible. But he's in what he describes as a dry and thirsty land, a parched desert where you become desperate for water. But he's saying he was that way spiritually. And have you ever been there spiritually? Desperate for God's presence, because that's what he's experiencing here. The Bible many times uses that metaphor of being thirsty, thirsting after God, needing water to describe the spiritual longing of God's children. A song that we sing here many times is Psalm 42, 1-2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God. And he adds, for the living God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. I heard a man one time give his testimony. One of my professors at school, Randy Stinson, and he was talking about this verse. 
I remembered it when I was getting this message ready, and he likes to hunt and all that, and he said one time he, he shot a deer. He's out hunting, he shot a deer, and he said he didn't kill it, but he wounded that deer. And so him and his friends that were with him, they took off tracking that deer, and he said we tracked that deer. It was towards evening when they started. He said they tracked that deer for miles. They tracked that deer for hours. One o'clock in the morning, they're out there with flashlights trying to find that deer, and he said they lost the trail. They couldn't find it. But they knew that there was a body of water about a mile away. And so they just went straight to that body of water. And they just looked around a little bit, and there was that deer laying there. And he said, when he was teaching on this, that he believes this deer that's being talked about in Psalm 42.1 as the deer painted. He says he believes that is a wounded deer. Because a wounded deer is desperate for one thing, and that's water. It becomes as he said, a consuming longing. And he talked one time, he got wounded in his head severely and he's bleeding real bad. And he said the paramedic came and is looking down on me, looks up and he says, do you think I'll live? And he said, the paramedic told him, he said, you'll be fine. And he's thinking, man, you guys all say that. I can't believe you, I can't trust you. But he said the one thing he remembers out of that was he just had this thirst, this insatiable thirst because of that wound, because of that bleeding. And is saying, that's what that deer is, that longing that I've got to have water. And that's what Dave was describing there. And he said that's how he felt about God. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And you can just hear that. That's Psalm 42. You can just hear that longing for that communion with God in what he's saying. Just reading the words. And Matthew Henry says this in his commentary. He says, The best and dearest of God's saints and servants may sometimes have their lot cast in a wilderness, which leaves them lonely and solitary, desolate and afflicted, wanting, wandering and unsettled, and quite at a loss for what to do with themselves. In other words, they're desperate. They need to get hold of the Lord. And David's found himself in that kind of a position when he wrote this psalm, a desperate position. So most scholars agree that when David wrote this psalm and why he is in the wilderness at this time, it's because he's fleeing from his son Absalom. It drove him out in the wilderness. And think about what all he had to leave. He had to leave his crown. He had to leave his palace. He had to leave all the honor that he had. And he had to leave a son whom he deeply loved that has turned against him. And all the people's hearts have been turned against him. And he's out fleeing. And he is truly in not only a physical wilderness, but he's also in a spiritual wilderness. Look what he says in verse 1. He's crying out from the depths of his soul. Oh God, thou art my God. You know, there's a difference between the way David is crying out, oh God, and the way sinners do it. Because they'll say that all the time, don't they? They'll blaspheme the name of the Lord in saying that. But that's not what David's doing here, isn't it? Only a true child of God can cry out like he's doing there. Oh God, thou art my God. From the depths of his being, because he talks about his soul and his flesh longing for God. That just represents it's all of him. It's not just his soul, but it's affected even his body. Just all of him, he says, is longing for God, the whole man. So he's turning 
and crying to the one that he knows has helped him in the past. Look in verses 6 and 7. He says, When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches, verse 7, because you have been my help. He says, therefore I know in the shadow of thy wings I will rejoice. God's been his help in the past and he's crying out. He knows he will be his help in the future and now. Oh God, you are my God. And when he's doing that, he's making in that very first statement there, he's making a commitment to God, isn't he? You are my God. And he says, I will seek you. Isn't that what he says? Early I will seek you. So despite the circumstances, despite being away from the temple, the ark in Jerusalem, what's David committed himself to out here in his wilderness? He's committed himself to seeking God. And that's the hardest time to do that a lot of times, isn't it? When you feel like you've been all by yourself, you're kind of left desolate, you're in a situation where where's all my help? That's sometimes the hardest time to make that commitment to seek God early. But he longs to enjoy the God that has helped him in the past. And Spurgeon, if you don't have it, it'd be worth getting. There's a three-volume set you can get of his called The Treasury of David. And it has a lot in there on all the Psalms. And he has this in there for Psalm 63 about what David is saying here. I thought this was worth repeating. He says, David does not say, my soul thirsts for water. But my soul thirsts for thee. Nor does he say, My soul thirsts for the blood of my enemies. But he says, My soul thirsts for thee. Nor does he say, My soul thirsts for deliverance out of this dry and barren wilderness. But he says, My soul thirsts for thee in a dry and thirsty land. The psalmist is alone with God. And he says, In his hour of desolation, he looks up from the desert to heaven. Oh God, he cries, Spurgeon writes, thou art my God. I thought that was good. He looks from the desert and he looks up into heaven and cries out, oh God, thou art my God. A man named Eric Alexander, whom I really like, he looked at this psalm and he approached it by asking three questions. What exactly is this thirst that David's talking about? And his second question was, where does this thirst come from and how is it satisfied? How is this thirst quenched? And I want to answer those questions today by God's grace. And the first question is, what is this thirst? Now, Alexander gave this definition. He says, and I thought this was worth repeating, too. It is a deep, this thirst that David has, a deep, intense, urgent, all-consuming desire for God's presence and for his fellowship and for his favor. It is in a deep, intense, urgent, all-consuming desire for God's presence, for his fellowship, and for his favor. Now let me say something. When he's asking for there his presence, his fellowship, and his favor, that is not a dry, doctrinal, unemotional experience that we're talking about there, is it? What David's talking about and what he's crying out for here is a living, actual, felt experience of God's presence. So it calls David to exclaim in verse 3 that thy loving kindness is better than life. We sing that song. That's, <laughs> I could say this about a bunch of them. That's one of my favorite songs, but it really is. Can't play that one too much. This is something he's saying, thy loving kindness, it's something that can be felt. It's something that can be 
actually experienced because it emotes praise when you experience it. Thy loving kindness is better than life. And so my lips, as a result of experiencing that, my lips shall praise thee. They can't help it. Your hands have to go up. Lift up my hands in thy name. And that's what calls Charles Wesley and a lot of these hymn writers. These are men that knew God. Charles Wesley and John Wesley and really a lot of those old saints, they said by faith, sure, it's all by faith, but that faith will bring an experience that comes. <laughs> Not this detached, unemotional experience, a real experience. And it caused him to write that hymn, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. My great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King. I want to have a thousand tongues to sing out the glories of His grace. He's not doing that because he hasn't experienced something. And that's what David's crying out for here. My soul and my flesh cry out for God, the living God. I think the Bible teaches that that's something that all Christians must and should experience. The assurance of God's love. You can be saved without it. But God wants you to have that. He wants you to know that He's your Father and you're His child. A knowing, an experiential knowing of that. Because that is all that matters in the end, isn't it? If you have that knowledge, we can face any wilderness, we can face any adversity, we can face any trial. And that is what David is thirsting for. The assurance that God is still with him cares for him and will never leave him. So I'm asking today, do you long, do I long and thirst for this? Like a wounded deer going for the water. The beautiful thing is we long for that. He will grant us that. He's not going to leave us with the desire that way and leave it unfulfilled. David experienced God's presence in the temple. Look in verse 2. He says, to see thy power and thy glory. That's what he wants. So as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. He's experienced that. I've experienced it in the sanctuary, and he's saying, I want to experience that here in the wilderness. I experienced there. I want to have that same experience out here. Like Spurgeon said, it's not so much the sanctuary that David wants to see. He wants to see the God of the sanctuary. That's what he's crying out for. So he had a vision. That's what that word means, see. It's not the ordinary word to see something. It's the word that's used when prophets would have a vision. And he said, when I was in the sanctuary, when I was in the temple, I had a vision, a visual experience like Isaiah in Isaiah 6 of your power and your glory. And he's saying, I want that same experience out here in this thirsty land is what he's crying out for. So how important is this? How important to thirst for God's presence and to experience his love. Well, it's so important that Paul took almost a half a chapter in the book of Ephesians when he wrote to that church that they need to have a revelation of God's loving kindness. So if you would, put something there and turn back to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, this is a prayer of Paul's. He says, for this cause, verse 14, Ephesians 3, I bow my knees, I'm praying unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, of whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. And here's what he's praying, that he would grant you, that he would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might by his spirit 
in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith that you being rooted and grounded in what? In love. His loving kindness. In verse 18, that you may be able to comprehend, to understand with all saints what is the breadth and length and depth and height. In verse 19, and to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you might be filled with all the fullness of God. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. Unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. And in verse 19, where he says, and to know the love of Christ. The word know there, it never means just to have an intellectual knowledge. All through the Bible, Old and New Testament, Adam knew his wife. That's more than an intellectual knowledge. We understand that. And it's always know means an experiential knowledge. Not just take it by faith and there's no experience involved with it. That's not what he's saying here. And the other thing is, what we see here, is this experience, this is something that all Christians should and must know. So like I said, it's, your salvation isn't based on it, having that assurance. It's going to make your trip a whole lot better. It really is. But look what Paul says. Is that just for a few people? Look what he says in verse 18. That you may be able to comprehend with how many people? Just a few just the, the ones the Catholics name the saints? Just a few? No, he's saying all saints. That's all Christians. That's all of us in here that are believers. For all saints. But here's what I'm not saying. I've known people, people I love, that they chase anointings. They chase feelings. They chase experiences. That's one of their main things. That's how they know God is there. That's not a good thing to be doing that, Okay. Because it's got to be the spirit and truth. You can't leave truth out. And that's what happens when you're just chasing anointing and experiences. I've seen that. You fall into gross errors with that. But Christianity is not something that you just purely take by faith. It's got to begin there. Peter said this in 1 Peter 1. He said that we would rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. I think there's going to be a, a little bit of your body and emotion involved in that. Joy unspeakable. Rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see, experience that the Lord is good. Blessed. And how do you do that? It's got to be through faith. Blessed is the man, he says, that trust in him. You put your trust in him, you will experience and you will taste and you will see the goodness of the Lord. And that's what brings the testimonies here that we hear. That's what Megan experienced, the goodness of the Lord. You experienced that, didn't you? And it brings joy unspeakable and full of glory. That's the way it works. The next thing I want to go, if you go back to Psalm 63, what else we see here is that this thirst, this experience, experience God's presence, it was an urgent matter for David. An urgent matter. And that is right there in verse 1, where he says, God, thou art my God. Early, he says, will I seek thee. That word, whether it's early or earnestly, because some of the translations, your translation, whatever translation you have in here, might say earnestly. Either way, King James says early early or earnestly, but both words have the same sense of urgency. In other words, it's something that can't be put off. He's not putting it off. Early will I seek thee, or earnestly will I seek thee. 
So get back to the deer panting for the brooks. There's an urgency there in that deer, isn't there? You're not going to hold that deer back. It knows it's a matter of life and death. Great thirst is a huge motivator. I'm telling you, if you met somebody that had been wandering in the desert for several days with nothing to drink, and you're walking up to them, and behind your shoulder, they see this big barrel with a thing to dip the water out of, a pure, clean water, you're not going to be able to stop them and have a conversation with them about how the World Series is going. They're going to be just pushing right past you, and I need this. And that's that urgency, that's that earnestness that David's saying. So he's saying, it's an urgent matter for me. I'm in the wilderness. I need God. I need to experience his power and glory and know that loving kindness is with me. And I read this a little bit back, uh, reading this biography of George Mueller. And this caught my attention. George Mueller is a man of faith, but he's also, from what I've read, people's uh, description of him, he's one of the most godly, peaceful, trustful people you'd want to meet. But he said this, and I thought this was good. He says he taught, George Mueller taught that growth and happiness and love were essential for a Christian to experience peace and power in his life. And here's what George Mueller said. It is impossible to set limits to the experience any believer who casts himself wholly on God, surrenders himself wholly to God, and cherishes deep love for his word and holy intimacy with himself. It's impossible to set limits. But this is what he said at the end. He says, the first business of every morning should be to secure happiness in God. To know and experience his loving kindness is what he's saying. He's saying, you've got to make that the first business of every morning. That really caught my attention. You go forth this day knowing... And that's funny, he didn't say God's holiness, you know, make sure you read the law, make sure. No, he says you've got to get that first thing in in the morning, that the happiness of God, that he's happy with you, the loving kindness, you have joy in him, going forth in your day rejoicing. And that's that urgency that's there. First thing we should do, secure our happiness in God. And the other thing I want to see here with David about what is this thirst, and that is that his thirst had a definite goal. What I mean by that is the world, it really never knows what it's seeking after. This is the way I was. All the world knows is they're dissatisfied and that we never have the people in the world. Never had my longing satisfied before I became a Christian. It's just something there. No matter how much you got or whatever, it was never satisfied you. Move on to something else. Everything's unsatisfying. And I read this. Madeline Murray O'Hare. Some of you young people have no idea who she was, but she was Miss Atheist back in the day. She's the one that... She got prayer out of the public school systems. But we're talking about somebody that they don't know the world's longings and desires are left unfulfilled. Well, she was known as a ruthless businesswoman, yet she was insecure, too, who longed for public acceptance. And here's what she wrote. They found her diaries after she died. And she says, I want money and power, and I'm going to get it. And she wrote, by age 50. Now, you got to understand, this was back in the 70s. So so she says, I want to have $60,000. I mean, today... $60,000 would be more like I want to have $600,000, but that had been a lot of money back then. By age 50, I want $60,000, a Cadillac, a mink coat, a cook, and a housekeeper. And she said, in 1974, I'll run for governor of Texas, and in 1976, I'll be the president of the United States. 
as her desires. And yet she also wrote in her diaries that she just longed for somebody to love her. So guess what? There's something in her that is never satisfied. That's the frustration of the sinner. They're never going to be satisfied. But David knew exactly what he longed for, didn't he? And what was that? God. Not only God, he says, the living God. Unlike Madeline O'Hare, David is not worried about his throne. He's not worried about his home. And he's not worried about his money. The only thing we're reading here, the only thing he longs for is to know God's presence, his power, and his loving kindness. That's all he cares about. So maybe you're in here today, you don't know the Lord. You've got these longings that just never seem to be satisfied. So here's a famous quote from Augustine that might help you out. Famous quote, heard this many times. Augustine says this, God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts find no rest until they find it in you. God, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts find no rest until they find it in you. So back to Psalm 63, the second question is, where does this thirst come from? Well, I'll say this, it doesn't come from fallen human nature. It doesn't, because Romans 3.11 says, there is none that understands, there is none that seeks after God. An unregenerate person has no concern about seeking after the Lord. And how many people have you and I met along the way that think it's a big thing that they're independent from God? They're proud of it. I mean, how many times have I heard somebody say, you know, Christianity and religion is for weaklings? But Jesus said, our Lord Jesus said just the opposite. He said, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. And he says, woe unto you that are full, didn't he? But blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Just the opposite of how the world views things. So think about it. Without that hunger and without that thirst, God has put that in us physically, but he's also put it in that spiritually in us. Without that hunger and thirst, do you realize there would be no spiritual growth? Because people must want God, must desire God, must desire His Word before He can give Himself to them. It's like they say, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But God sovereignly brought David to a dry and thirsty land. Why did he bring him there? To torment him? To torture him? No. To make him dissatisfied with all the things of the world and to bring him to cry out, Oh God, you are my God. I need thee every hour or I perish. That's really what's in his cry. Where does that thirst come from? That thirst is a true work of grace. Because where there is no thirst... And where there is no desire, that just proves somebody is dead spiritually. That's all it proves. God creates this emotional and spiritual thirst to him to draw people to him, to discover his grace and gives them a passion to know him. He says in Isaiah 55, 1 to 3, Ho, come, all ye who are thirsty, come to the waters, come. 
buy wine and milk without money and without cost. He says, give ear and come to me. He's hollering, ho, listen, you're thirsty? Come. He says, it's an invitation. How many times? Four times he says, come, come to me. Don't have any money? Doesn't matter. Spiritually bankrupt? That's the kind of person I want. Come to me and buy. Give ear to what I have to say and you'll live, is what he says. And with every true revival that's ever taken place anywhere, there comes this deep thirst for God. This thirst to see thy power and thy glory that we have right there in verse 2. There's this old hymn that they sing. Revive thy work, O Lord. We're talking revival. And the second line says, create soul thirst for me. Create a thirst in my soul for you. And hungering for the bread of life, oh, may our spirits be. Revive thy work, O Lord. Create soul thirst for thee. And hungering for the bread of life, oh, may our spirits be. And I heard his testimony given about in the Welsh revival many years ago. This little village, these people are being stirred. God's spirit is working through this village. And they all gather and people were coming to church that never came to church. And they're sitting in church and the minister gets up in the pulpit and he starts talking about the political situation of the day. And this guy cries out from the audience, and this was untypical for those type of people. He says, give us God, sir. Give us God. Because that was the thirst. He didn't come there to hear about politics. And that's the sign of a true revival. And God is the only one that can do that, supernaturally create a hunger and thirst for Him. And He is the only one that can satisfy it, isn't He? We sing the song, Here's my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Here's my cup, fill it up and make me whole. We still sing that? Oh, we used to sing it and mean it. Amen. Think about it. The, the people of Jesus' day, when he came, they had been 400 years without a prophet. And God created a thirst in those Jews, didn't they? They flocked to John the Baptist. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were thirsty. Amen. Thirsty for that. When Peter spoke to the multitude in the temple after he healed the lame man, this is what he promised. He says, he promised that God would quench the thirst of their hearts. He said this, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. And he added, when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. He's saying God will pour out his spirit. The times of refreshing, a cool drink. In a thirsty land. Isn't that how you would describe that? Something to praise God for. And that's what we have here in this psalm. Look in verse 3 and 4. Because thy loving kindness, he says, is better than life, my lips shall praise thee. Oh, I'll bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name when he experiences that. And that brings me to the third question. How is that thirst satisfied? You already answered that. God will be the one to satisfy the thirst, but he will. Look what it says in verse 5. David writes, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips. 
Only God can satisfy that thirsting and that hungering. Amen? Everyone that is thirsty, come to the water, he says. But listen, the invitation is always and only to whom? The thirsty. It's always and only. God's invitation is always and only to the thirsty. But the good news is, he'll satisfy and quench anyone's thirst that comes to him, without exception. John 7, the, the setting there is the Feast of Tabernacles. And they had this well-known water-pouring rite or ritual or ceremony that took place. It symbolized that fruitfulness, good crops, that's what the Feast of Tabernacles was all about, celebrating God, giving them good crops. They pour out water, so saying that fruitfulness can only come from rain, rain being poured out. So every day at this feast, it was a seven-day feast, the priests would go down to the Pool of Siloam and they'd take this large golden jar and they'd dip it in the Pool of Siloam and then there would be a procession. They would walk back to the temple, the high priest in the lead carrying that gold jar of water. And as they got near the water gate, before they walked through that into the temple, they would blow on the trumpet. Three times they would blow loud on the trumpet. Joyful proclamation and to get the people's attention. It's a joyful occasion. And so while everybody watched, the priest would march around the altar with the golden jar of water, and they'd have a choir singing the Hallel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. That's what they would sing. The priest is marching around carrying that water on the altar. And when they got to Psalm 118, every male, they would have a palm branch in their right hand that they would wave with these sticks all tied up. And in their left hand, they would hold up a piece of citrus fruit to show that God had blessed them and their crops. And all of them, everyone would cry out, give thanks to the Lord. Cry that out three times. They had a daily offering of wine that they would pour out before the Lord. But on this feast day, they would also pour that water out before the Lord, the golden jar of water poured out before the Lord. And here's how the Jews of that day looked at that water ceremony. They looked at it that it pointed back to where when they were in the desert and thirsty, God had poured out water supernaturally to satisfy their thirst. But also in the mind of those Jews, and even more importantly, that pouring out of water during the Feast of Tabernacles symbolically pointed to the Messianic age, the age when the Messiah come when a stream from the rock, him, would flow over the entire earth, the pouring out of his spirit. They knew that. That's what it symbolized. And that's why it's significant. If you read John 7, it says that Jesus stood up on the last day of the feast, that feast. They'd seen this happen. I don't know if he did it right as they were doing that ceremony. It doesn't say. But he stood up right as they've been either poured out that water, they've been pouring out that water. The people had seen that. And it says, he said in a loud voice, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. And John adds, but this he spoke concerning the spirit whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. What he's saying is clear, isn't he? He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of all of what this feast represents. Are you spiritually thirsty? 
Are you in a dry and desert land like David? He's saying, then come to me and drink. And that would be Isaiah 12, 3, with joy. Will you draw water from the wells of salvation? And that's what they were doing, drawing that water and pouring it out. And he's saying, with joy, that's what we'll do. Within us is a well of life, Jesus said. What did he tell the Samaritan woman at the well in John 4? He told her, he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that saith unto you, give me to drink, you would have asked of him and he would have given you living water. So he's clearly saying if we will ask him, any of us, he will give us living water. He will quench our thirsting souls. And he went on to tell that woman, whoever drinks of this water, pointing to the well, Whoever drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whosoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Let me ask you, do those words affect you? What he's saying there. So he promises that when we receive and most of us have, I believe, received the Holy Spirit. When He's residing in us, we have a well of water that springs up into everlasting life. I mean, that is no small thing. John G. Lake said this. There's a lot of things he said about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, but listen to this. He said, It is not for my heart to discourage any man in order to make you disbelieve for one moment in the truthfulness of your own baptism in the Holy Ghost. He said, I believe God by His Spirit has baptized many in the Holy Ghost. But, beloved, we have not comprehended the greatness of God's intent. Not that we have not received the Spirit, but our lives have not been sufficiently surrendered to God. He said, we must keep on ascending right to the throne, right to the heart of God, right into the soul of the glorified Christ. And that's coming from a man that has experienced the power of God and the anointing and the presence of God and a holy life like none of us know. That's coming from him. Yet he said, you read his writing, he felt he had just scratched the surface of the potential that's there in receiving the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray for God to give us a thirst and a hunger to know him more. Amen. To want to comprehend as we looked at earlier, the breadth and length and depth and height and to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul's praying that for the church of Ephesus. They'd already received the Holy Spirit. They're Christians. But he's saying this is something that is an ongoing experience. It's an ongoing comprehension. You're never going to comprehend it too much. It's not like, well, I got the baptism and spoken tongues 10 years ago, 15, 30, 40, whatever, and that's all there is to it. No. Or I've had a experience of the love of God. No. We may come into the fullness of God. And he says he's going to do all that we can ask or think above by what? That power, he says, that worketh in us. And that power he's talking about is whom? It's not an it. It's a whom. The Holy Spirit, he's in us. Amen. He strengthens us in the inner man. So the Lord gives the invitation to the thirsty, and then he promises to fill us. 
Revelation 22:17 says, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him that hears say, come and let him that is a thirst come and whosoever will let him take of the water of life freely. That leaves nobody out, does it? The only people it leaves out are those that aren't thirsty. If you're not thirsty, you're not going to come. But if you are, it's an open invitation. Whosoever, like John 3.16, nobody's excluded. Take of the water of life freely. What a promise. Now that's one to claim there, isn't it? That really is. So what was David thirsty for when he was in that dry and thirsty land? The one thing that would quench his spiritually parched soul. The presence of God to experience the loving kindness of the Lord. The most precious thing we could have. He says it's better than life. Better than life. Thy loving kindness to experience that. Oh, he says, I'm crying out for that. That's what I want. And Jesus says he'll give us that experience daily. Springing up in us, he that has the Spirit. is a well. Spring on us as a living well to be drawn from daily. Because thy loving kindness is better than life, he says, my lips shall praise thee and thus will I bless thee. While I live, I will lift up my hands in thy name. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this word that you've given us, Father, and we all pray, Lord. We all join in prayer, Father, and we ask that individually and as a church that you'll put a hunger and a thirst for you, Lord, a real hunger and a thirst that you, by your grace and your mercy, will give us that, Lord, that will desire you above all things and that we can experience your loving kindness, Lord, that is better than life. And truly, we can give you praise from our hearts. We do that and ask for that, Father, in Jesus' name.